Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Faith here with your welcome toast. It was Gaden Metcalf and Charlotte Hayes who said, nobody in the world eats better than the bereaved Southerner. Big G, where the action is in downtown New Haven. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. Drop Dead Fascinating and Sometimes Hilarious, the Southern Sympathy Cookbook. Novelist Amy Bloom is here to tell us how they ate in the White House and about her novel that features Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok. A jambalaya to knock your socks off, and we discovered a great dry rosé from Italy. I am so excited about this. Okay, my treasured food buddies are here. Senior contributors Chris Prosperi, Mark Raymond, and Robin Doyan. And Aiken, senior producer. Our show is now in residence at Gateway Community College. I call it the Big G. And we on the show now make use of the Big G's five fully equipped professional kitchens. Oh, yeah. And we're, you know, students are walking around the kitchens and training in the culinary program here. Isn't it just unbelievable? It really is. It's, it's like just, our second home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here it is. The book I have been waiting for. The Southern Sympathy Cookbook. And the subhead would be funeral food with a twist. Now, <laughs> this is um, Perry Coleman Magnus. This is her book. And we are talking about buttermilk banana bread, angel biscuits, bourbon butter roasted pecans, real fried chicken, a hot chicken salad, and on and on it goes straight through desserts, including a coconut bun cake, a pineapple upside down bun cake, and Kentucky bourbon balls. Honestly, this oh, yeah. is the most delicious sounding cookbook, and it is a genius idea. Perry Coleman Magnus, welcome to the Food Schmooze Party. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you? I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. Awesome. Nice. Yes. <laughs> That's but good... I went to college in Connecticut, Trinity. Oh, right in Hartford. There you go. My neighbor. Welcome back then. (laughs) So, yeah, you really feel part of our community, Perry. So where'd you get this idea to do this? Can you talk about the Southern experience with sympathy food, as you call it, providing food for people who have grief? Southerners, we always express our emotions through food and having big parties and big displays of emotion. As soon as you hear of someone dying or having an accident or being in some kind of distress, the first thing you think is, what can I make? What food can I bring? I think funeral food is home cooking. It's nostalgic. It's just very comforting. And who couldn't use a little more comfort in Absolutely. Life, right? And don't you think that when you're going to somebody's house at this time when there's something going on with somebody, you turn to the things that are 
time-tested are fan-tested as a, mm-hmm. a cook at home. Yeah, right. Things that people have told you they love over and over and over again. So you bring the best stuff to somebody's house just as a gift of, oh, I'm so sorry, or oh, can I help, right? Right. Absolutely. Bring them some comfort. So I want to turn immediately to thank you for this, a recipe. We have about three of your recipes up on our website, foodschmooze.org. Buttermilk bacon stuffed eggs. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So we wouldn't call these deviled eggs because that would be no. terrible for a funeral yeah. food, right? So, so Exactly. We're talking about whole buttermilk, strips of bacon, green onions, black pepper. How does this come together? It's really beautiful. Buttermilk and bacon are two of my favorite words in the and English then. language. <laughs> bourbon on that list and I'm good to go. Yeah. Amen. People are doing such amazing creative things with stuffed eggs these days and they sometimes can get out there in the crazy world. But this really is a stripped back simple recipe with these really pure ingredients. The buttermilk gives a little bit of tang. You get that salty smokiness from bacon a little spice from the green onions, but the egg really comes through, which is the point of the stuffed egg. And we all have the deviled egg plate that has to get used, so make a good egg that everyone's going to eat, and then they get to see your pretty deviled egg plate. And the idea is that the bacon is cut in little tiny thin strips and is laid across the top of each egg half. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Right, you get that little texture too. Yeah, Mm. exactly, texture. One of the greatest things about this cookbook and why this is going on my personal shelf, in addition to how how great these southern recipes are in here, is this. Every once in a while throughout the book, Perry has found something from obituaries from around the country, particularly the south. This is from an obituary in Bloomingdale, Georgia. He loved southern food smothered in cane syrup. He hated vegetables and hypocrites. He adored the ladies. A few of the more colorful ones were Mama Margie, Crazy Pam, Big Titty Wanda, Spacey, Stacy, and Sweet Melissa. He explained that nickname had nothing to do with her attitude. He attracted more women than a shoe sale at Macy's. He got married when he was 18, but it didn't last. He was no quitter, however, so he gave it a shot two more times. <laughs> from, from an obit, actual obit. I love it. That's Isn't this awesome. the best? This is when the uh, idea of writing a book about funeral food came up, the first thing I did, as you do, is called my mother and and she said, oh, you need my obituary file. Oh. She, saves the, she saves all the good ones. Well, my mother is an historian and a writer, and she wrote a book about the historic cemetery here in Memphis. And during the process, people started sending her these entertaining or rather unusual obituaries yeah, yeah. from across the South. And as soon as I started slipping through that, I thought, now I know how to do this book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now I know how to make this Entertaining and funny without being too. Yes. Right? I'm, I, oh, no, I'm just almost speechless over how That was one of the is. best obituaries I think I've ever heard. You I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, and that, I won't yeah. say which ones, but some of those are obituaries of people I know. Oh. 
Well, yeah. Okay, we keep secrets here on the show. This is the one from your book that we said to Chris, can you whip this up for us because we want to taste this. We think this is going to give us a feel for other recipes in the book. This jambalaya casserole was so delicious. It's like a fast paella. And we're talking about a Creole seasoning. So it's salt and pepper, paprika, garlic powder, you know, the usual suspects, a little ground thyme, some onion powder, a little bit of ground oregano. And then you do that casserole. So this had, Chris, nice chunks of chicken and bacon. Bacon. And go ahead. And and do sausage and onion and celery. But I love the way she did it. She really sears the chicken hard so it gets nice and crispy. The same thing with the bacon and the same thing with the sausage. So they're really crispy on the outside. Mm. Yeah. And then she combines it all with some tomatoes, some tomato paste, the bay leaf, and then a white little wine. white wine. Yeah, yeah you yeah. reduce it a little. You throw in your chicken, chicken broth. broth. It, this is how it's so easy. Just throw in a cup of rice into the thing, stir it all up. You cook it for 10 minutes. Then you add um, uh, some red beans that are drained, and then you mix it. It gets a little thick but a little soupy, and you pour it into a casserole dish, top it with breadcrumbs. And then I did what most people would probably do. They made it the day before. You put it in your refrigerator. And then the day of, you just take it and throw it in the oven. It was 30 minutes and it was like gold, right? Crispy on top. So So comforting, Robin. Mm. What's going on in that recipe is a layering of flavors. I mean, yeah. we think as, as just regular home cooks that you're just dumping a bunch of things in together and somehow it comes out fine. But it's really a layering, Chris. Yeah. Can you talk about that? It's the way she actually cooks those things separately. As you, you start with the chicken, you cook that, then you take it out, you, then you throw in your bacon, you cook that, you take it out, and then you add your, your mm-hmm. onions, peppers, and your celery, you cook that, you take So you've got all these flavors ready to go. You sear off your andouille sausage. So now you have all these components. You have your spice mix, you throw that in, and then it all goes back together. I'm telling you, when it bakes in the oven, it becomes this totally different dish. And that's where what Robin said comes in. That's when it gets to this, like, big hug. It's comforting. And it does. It's like it hugs you, right? So this jambalaya casserole, thank you, Perry, is on our website, foodschmooze.org. Perry Coleman Magnus, author of the Southern Sympathy Cookbook. I adore this thing. Funeral food with a twist. So you hear us talking about that. Are we on target with this layering idea for you? And where'd you get this recipe? Is this a family thing? This is sort of a family thing adapted and a lot of experience eating jambalaya and Cajun food in general. But I've always liked the idea of trying to put that in a casserole that, again, is something you could take to a family. And all of these ingredients are good by themselves, but putting that spice mix, and like you say, I love to season the chicken with that spice mix and let it sit for a little bit and kind of let some of that spice soak in before you sear it off and then adding everything and it's still one pot Mm -hmm. yeah i like that in in 10 different pots having everything done with not too many dishes to clean with layers of flavor with that cajun trinity of celery bell pepper and onion a great freshly made seasoning mix instead of something from a can and then being able to, like you said, put it aside, yeah. wrap it up, take it to someone, cook it the next day. And it tastes better, right? It gets yeah, better sitting like absolutely. that. Absolutely, It's got a little spice, a little verve, 
And get that New Orleans thing in. Yeah. Now hungry for it all oh. over again. Okay. <laughs> and that brings me to the next obituary segment of our show. Um, <laughs> so here, here's another obituary that you have in the book. I'm reading it. This is from um, Hot Springs, Arkansas. This is for real. It said, the obituary, she is survived by her loving husband and sons, her sister, her brother, her bossy daughter-in-law, <laughs> and three as yet unspoiled granddaughters and numerous relatives who were all loved but not mentioned in the will. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Those are great. Yeah. Those no, are really good. That is so awesome. Seriously. We need newspapers uh, that used to talk like that. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Quickly, because we're going to get to these bourbon balls, and um, those are such a hit. But there's this recipe that you have in there, Perry, and I was curious about it. It's called That Pineapple Thing. I love that. What's the story of that, that name? This pineapple casserole that is pineapple and cheddar cheese and a cracker crumb topping is something I have all my life been aware of. It's in every southern community cookbook. You know, Ladies Auxiliary Church Fundraiser Cookbook as a casserole, as a dessert, as something to go with the ham. But I will say, I had never had it until I started working on this book because it sounds very strange. Cheddar cheese and pineapple. Yeah. Yeah. But in the course of writing a book like this, everyone (laughs) I talked to for months, I would say, what do you think of as funeral food? And several people said to me, that pineapple thing. And I knew immediately what they were talking about. Uh-huh. So, I, I, I've never heard I of that pineapple thing. <laughs> you well, let it? me tell you, I did a little research. I have a huge collection of these community cookbooks. Yeah, I me too. tightened up the recipe for myself, made it, served it to my family, who were dubious. It is delicious. There is a reason people have been making it for generations, and that it is in all of those cookbooks. It is fabulous with a ham. I will be having it this weekend with a ham. So crushed pineapple, a can of pineapple chunks. Okay. So that's two cans of pineapple. Granulated sugar. Okay. Self-rising flour, a little salt. Cheddar. Sharp cheddar grated. Then there's a stick of butter. Okay, that makes everything good. And then, this is it, 40 buttery Ritz crackers. Oh, okay. that's it. And do you crush them so, up and put them in, in there? Buttery. What are you, we even talking about? I don't think there is actual butter in them anymore. I don't but think, anyway, I don't think they're unbuttery. The idea but. of them is that they are buttery. And then and you crush them up and put them in all together. Well, let's have t- tell us, Perry. How does it go? You put the crackers in a zip top bag, you crack right? Crack up the crackers in, in a ziploc bag, so you get a nice crumb topping. Yeah. And then when you're using the pineapple from a can, you drain the pineapple juice. Okay. And then you put some of that in with the crackers. Soften and a them a bit little. Of melted yeah. butter. And sprinkle that over the mixture of the pineapple with a little flour and sugar and the sharp cheddar cheese. Bake it off. And I'm telling you. Unbelievable. So if I make this with a ham, people are going to be like, wow, that's amazing. They, right. are, really, yeah. they are. All right, I'm no, going to do it. I'm going to do it. No, you try it in the restaurant. No, I'm not going to try then, it. I'll try it at no. home. Why? I'm are you try scared it home. to yeah. try it in the restaurant? <laughs> she was scared. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't you? Pineapple is the great southern symbol for hospitality. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I got you there. To include that. Yeah. And, you know, a recipe for that. And other parts of the country, people put cheddar cheese on apple pie, right? Sure, we of do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And listen, yeah. when we were in college, 
and we all made this casserole of the cream of mushroom soup and oh, the sure. sherry yeah, and yeah, the yeah. throw in some mushrooms yeah, and the yeah. chicken breasts and yeah. sour cream. Yeah, bake it and in the oven. And you throw it in the thing and stir it up, a little white wine in there too, I think. Honestly, it would come out. I'd make this for my housemates yeah. all the time. And we'd say, oh my God. So good. You want a second serving. delicious. Well, that's the same profile we're talking about. Once you start putting in all these creamed items, these milk-based items with the cheddar cheese and all this stuff, how can this be bad? It's going to taste fantastic. (laughs) There you go. Okay. I think funeral food tends to be traditional southern funeral food and casseroles. The realm of the canned soup. Yeah, gotcha. Condensed something. And I've really moved away from that for the most part with a lot of my casseroles. You know, fresh, which I think people are looking for, getting away from processed foods, except for Ritz crackers. No, we. No, you got to keep the Ritz crackers. We we agree with you. You know, every once in a while there'll be a recipe, and at the end it should say, "P.S. Go to the hospital and lie down." (laughs) Pretty much. Okay. So um, let's do the Kentucky Bourbon Balls, mm-hmm. which are on our website, foodschmooze.org. Thank you again. This is from the Southern Sympathy Cookbook. Perry Coleman Magnus is our guest and the author of the book. We love these bourbon balls here on the show. So we've got pecan halves, bourbon, unsalted butter, confectioner's sugar, <laughs> vanilla extract, and milk chocolate chips. And a little bit of sorghum syrup mm-hmm. works so well with bourbon. It gives that kind of grassy, really rich, deep flavor. And bourbon balls are very southern, very classic. Mm-hmm. People make it a lot at Christmas. Yeah. And, and a traditional recipe is with vanilla wafers. Oh, really? Um, you know, maybe that's sort of a shortcut recipe, vanilla wafers and butter and bourbon. But I think pecans, good southern native pecans go so well and I dug around to every recipe I could find and and really found one that had pecans that you put through a meat grinder yeah. um, so folding the chopped pecans that have been soaked in bourbon Ooh. oh I just wouldn't and eat the pecans so in you know the old-fashioned derby pie when somebody knows what they're doing with that yeah. pie, you have one slice of their pie and you say to yourself, what in the world am I feeling? <laughs> I just had a piece of pie and I'm a little wobbly in my chair. Are these bourbon balls, is the bourbon forward in the recipe? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> As she says, <laughs> that's why you have them. <laughs> the bourbon is very forward in the flavor and I do think, you know, it's nice to have a little nip. Yeah, yeah these it takes are the edge off. But it's not so, with, with the pecans and the sorghum, it's not like you're doing a shot. Right. Yeah, no, no. Unless no, you have a dozen. Have <laughs> the flavor is really <laughs> nicely melded into all of those other flavors. Okay. Here's a, an obit from, an actual obit from Memphis. It goes like this. Her first marriage was a three-ring circus, engagement ring, wedding ring, and suffering. <laughs> I never knew what... <laughs> I never knew what happiness was until I remarried, and by then it was too late. She slipped away and joined her daughter in heaven. Fortunately, her husband preceded her and joined his mother in a much warmer climate. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. That's a good one. That's beautiful. You know the one that Mark Twain won, right? I think you have it in the book. I did not attend his funeral, but I sent a nice letter saying I approved of it. Yeah, I do have that in the book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you are a dreamboat for doing this book. In addition to all the laughs and um, the real tradition of this, 
I think the recipes are just fantastic, Perry. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Y'all are so kind. Good luck with this. This is going to be a hit. I know it. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Okay. The Southern Sympathy Cookbook. It is funeral food with a twist. You could do these recipes anytime for any reason. Trust me. We were talking with Perry from Memphis, Tennessee. The more mouth-watering conversation and fun, including a wine tasting ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, it's a rosé that is the best I've had in years and years and very affordable. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. Amy Bloom is on, too. We're online now at foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. Oh, Lord, you better second Hope when I die. Better second line. Second line. When I die, die. you better second line. line. You better put my trumpet on my side for the big jam session beyond the skies. When I die, oh Lord, we gonna second line. Faith Middleton. You can sign in for our free podcast, which is a copy of the show. And if you sign up for it once, we will send it to you every week. It just pops up in your inbox, and it means you can listen to this show anytime you want. Of course, we love it when you listen live, but people, more and more people do it this way. So you go to foodschmooze.org. I'm with my treasured food buddies, and we have a special guest, Amy Bloom. My treasured food buddies, Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. Wine broker Mark Raymond of Weathersfield. Our senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken. Amy Bloom, welcome back to this show. I am so excited about this. There's no secret about how we do this. When we have a novelist on the show, first we start out with something that relates to the work of art of the person. So Amy's got a new novel called White Houses, and it's about Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok and their relationship. So we're going to get to that in just one second. But we like to start with the food item. Amy is a fabulous cook, loves to eat, as I do. We've had many meals together. So Amy, in the time of Eleanor Roosevelt, in the White House, what did they eat? They ate disgusting food. <laughs> they, the, the, story, the story that they told after 1932, which is uh, Franklin's first term, is it's an honor to be invited to dinner at the White House. Just make sure you have dinner first. Ooh. Um, oh. The, the, stop on your way. It yeah. wa- stop anywhere on your way. <laughs> it sounds a little George Bushian to me. It, I think it made George Bush look like Gourmet Magazine in its last days. <gasps> wow. I, I mean, this food well, was what did they eat? Well, it was boiled Russian pork, too. for example. Boiled pork. Boiled pork. Mm. Mm. And then you might have a nice accompaniment of boiled green beans. Was that because of the economy and the depression, or was this the... Well, I think it was a perfect storm of terrible food. It was the depression, and it was Uh, not the case that the White House had to be on a depression food budget, but Eleanor Roosevelt, God bless her, and her high-mindedness, 
felt that the White House should be a role model for frugal kitchens everywhere as people nice. struggled yeah. through the Depression. And one of the things that makes me love Lorena Hickok, who was actually born dirt poor and never had any money, is that she would keep looking at these meals and thinking, why would you choose to eat this? This is food eaten by people who have no choice. You mm. know, a pair of slightly green tinned pears for dessert. That kind of thing. So wow. the opposite of Louis the Thirteenth, right? The opposite of anybody. What's interesting is that Eleanor Roosevelt, during this time, always was thinking about how she seemed to other people, and she had to be an example. What's strange about this, when you say this, because I know you research (laughs) this like a demon, it's strange that she didn't say to herself, well, no one can see us. We will have some fine things here at this table. Well, I think there were two other things. One is that she grew up very fancy and I think a little uncomfortable with her life of privilege. The other thing is that Franklin really liked a nice meal. And it's hard not to conclude that the reason she installed a notoriously poor cook as their chief housekeeper and served notoriously revolting meals for 12 years might have had something to do with their interpersonal life and not just with uh, the kitchen. Yeah, because he was having that affair. He was always having an affair, and so she always served him terrible food. Yeah. Wow. It was payback. I I was going to (laughs) say. There you go. That's how it goes. Watch what you do or you eat bad. All right. Now, so you've tempted us with a little bit about this novel. By the way, it's called White Houses. And I read this once and was pretty staggered by this novel. And then I said, I want to be with these people again. I'm not done with them, and I want to know how you did this. So fascinating story, right? I had no idea about the details of this until I read this, the way you've Mm -hmm. presented it in the novel. So tell us about it for people who don't know. For a long time, there were certainly rumors about Eleanor Roosevelt's relationship with Lorena Hickok, who was at the time that they met the most prominent female journalist in America. She was the first woman to have a New York Times byline. She had covered the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. She was the only female reporter in the country who covered Big Ten sports and big headline-making murders and did not do weddings, did not do the society page, did not do recipes. They met when Franklin was running for president and Eleanor was first lady of New York State, and I think they were very drawn to each other. They were opposites in lots of ways, but also they were both very smart. They had political values in common. They were both really staunch Democrats. I think one of the things that made the love affair really complicated is that Lorena, in fact, was a great admirer of Franklin's as a president. She felt as I had felt about Obama. This is my president. Franklin Roosevelt was her president and also really unfortunately married to the woman she was in love with. Complicated. As people are. There's this time in the book where Lorena Hickok moves into the White House. And I think to myself, well, this is a novel. And then I think, well, I'm sure that didn't happen. Lorena Hickok, her lover, can't be like move into the White House where her (laughs) husband is. Right. And it really did happen. It really did happen. I mean, there are 3,000 letters between them, and they are in the Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, just in boxes and boxes and boxes, which is one of the things that made it very funny to read sort of mainstream historians or even somebody like Ken Burns saying, oh, I didn't really talk about that relationship because I don't dabble in tabloid gossip. And I thought 3,000 letters seems to me to be a little weightier 
than tabloid gossip. In fact, Eleanor had two rooms. She and Franklin didn't share a bedroom, and so she had her bedroom, and then she had a very big drawing room, which adjoined her room by a connecting door, and she moved Lorena in there. And somebody in an interview said to me, do you think Franklin knew? I feel pretty sure that if my husband moves somebody in next to his bedroom, no matter how big our house was, I would notice. Wow. I would think so. And so she's there on and off for 12 years for all of his terms. At one point when the relationship is no longer this passionate affair, she gets a smaller room further away down the hall. But she's still taking her meals with the family. She's still wandering into the kitchen for a muffin at 2 o'clock in the morning. And the White House in those days was really much more like a kind of rundown boarding house. It was a little shabby, a little worn at the edges, and tons of people lived there who were not Roosevelt's. These love letters, would you describe them as true love letters, steamy, erotic, or, you know, as people have said in the past, even historians have said things like, we can't really know from the letters. You know. Hmm? Well, again, those things are just very funny to read. In fact, one of the early books about these letters between them, the historian writes something like, these letters are absolutely not as they seem, which seems to me to be not a well-grounded position for a historian. So there are letters that say things like, I long to kiss you on the southeast corner of your lips and lie beside you all night. And then the historian's explaining that this is simply a Victorian lady's expression of affection. I'm thinking, I don't think so. No. I'm pretty sure that's (laughs) That's, not true. That's not what they said. (laughs) I I, I don't think that's a Victorian. I think a Victorian lady's expression of affection is, oh, my dear, I cannot wait to share this bouquet of violets with you. I don't think it's like I long to put my arms around you and lie beside you all night. Or there's another letter, which is really very moving to me, in which Eleanor writes to her, Darling, I felt terrible tonight when we were on the telephone, and I could not say to you, as I always do, I love you and I adore you, because little Jimmy, who's the youngest Roosevelt, was standing right beside me. Mm. And I think, if you're pals, that issue doesn't come up. And it was interesting, because it's on the right and the left, and so if you are a liberal Democrat and a great fan of Eleanor Roosevelt, somehow it was insulting to suggest Mm. that she had had a great love affair. And even if you were more conservative... It was still somehow insulting to suggest, I guess, that women had love affairs that were not fitting into some sort of conservative... I mean, whatever it was, it upset everybody. (laughs) And the title, why did you choose the title White Houses? I chose White Houses because there really are three houses in the story. There's the White House at Pennsylvania Avenue. There's also his little White House at Warm Springs, Georgia. And then there is Lorena's house, which is a little white cottage on Long Island, which is where she lived when she wasn't in the White House. They go on when they first meet. It's this wonderful section of your novel where they head off in the car together and they go on this trip together as new lovers do. And the whole world is sort of faded because everything they're doing with each other is what matters. But it starts with him standing there saying... And you two have a great time together, and he's waving them off. I thought, well, clearly in this novel he knows. Most of Eleanor's friends for most of her adult life, lots of them were gay women, not everybody, and her closest friends were gay couples, women who had been together for 20, 30 years who were very high-powered Democratic operatives or had taught with her. And Franklin liked these women. I mean, there's a certain amount of condescension, but, you know, there are letters that he has 
there's a couple that Eleanor is particularly close to, and they have a falling out between the couple and Eleanor, and they write to Franklin to help them out. And Franklin writes back this letter which says, you know, basically, Dear Nancy, dear Marion, don't you girls worry about a thing. I'll talk to Babs and see if I can help straighten it out. After all, you're in good hands with Papa. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, I didn't know any of this. This novel really looks at Lorena Hickok. And you certainly get to know Eleanor Roosevelt in a very different way, and it's really interesting. But Lorena Hickok just speaks to you and her life breaks your heart a little and you come to love her and root for her in this way. Is this just what spoke to you? How did you make that decision? Well, because it's a novel and not a history, I was really lucky enough that there was a lot of blank space around her. She was not a well-known figure in the modern world. Historians, most of whom had decided already that she was the first friend and nothing more, didn't, that was how she was known, didn't have a lot to say about her. I mean, they had sort of the outlines of her life a little bit and certainly the outlines of the relationship. But once you take a position that somebody is not terribly important in the life of an icon, people don't do a lot of research. So Mm. I had a lot of room to move as Mm. a novelist, for which I was very grateful because her own writing and her own newspaper articles, I mean, she was a very good journalist and she was funny and she was observant and she was insightful and also... She evolved. One of the things that she writes about is that when she began to do reporting for the Federal Emergency Relief Fund during the Depression, that she had to give up her racism. She had grown up thinking, no one's life is harder than mine. And she said, it was very painful for me to come to recognize that having oatmeal for dinner five nights a week and one pair of shoes between me and my three sisters made us lucky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you have to do me a favor. Here, you're sitting in the studio. We've got a wine to taste. Will you sit in with me? Because I know you love wine. We'd love to get your reaction to this. I am already saying yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh lucky are we. Yeah. A novel and wine tasting all together. I Eleanor Roosevelt, Lorena Hickok, unbelievable. Amy Bloom, White Houses, and the new novel. Oh, wait. It's going to be a series on television, right? God willing. The executive producer is Mike Lombardo, who used to be the head of HBO Drama, and our friend Katie Couric. That's awesome. Who has loved Eleanor Roosevelt her whole life, who's very serious about journalism, and basically called me out of the blue and said, I hope you'd consider letting me be an executive producer. And I just kept thinking, is this a joke? (laughs) It's like, yes, I certainly would consider letting you be an executive producer, and I feel very lucky to have her. Okay. Um, Now it's time for the wine. Uh, This is a rosé, and I want to say one of the best rosés that I have had in years and years. And the price point is fantastic. This is called... 11 Minutes from Pasqua, yeah. the Vineyard Pasqua. And we have this on the website, foochmoose.org. It is in an absolutely gorgeous, unusual bottle. It looks like in the bottle and in the glass. What would you say, Amy? You're the most descriptive of us. You know, it's that stuff that they always say about white wines and sort of like, hey, and it's like sunlight, but the little bit of pink is unmistakable. I mean, to me, the bottle is honestly, it reminds me of one of those, 
Italian movie stars of the 60s when you would see them in their like pink peignoir sets with the marabou mules. (laughs) And you go, I want to just... Can we just open that up, whatever that is? <laughs> Let's just and drink I, it. Can we just drink that? Because it is so pretty and it's so inviting. And, Mark, it, to me, it, you know, it looks in the glass like the golden hour yes. when everybody, mm. the catalog hour where they photograph everyone yeah. in that, that And light. everybody yeah. looks better. And you look yeah. gorgeous, you know. So 11 minutes, what's the title, I mean, the name referred to? So 11 minutes is the amount of time that the red grapes that this wine is made from have skin contact with the juice. Mm -hmm. So just that brief 11-minute first press. So you get that ever-so-slight color from the red skins. It's a wonderful blend of northern Italian grapes, all from the Lake Garda region. So you've got Corvina, you've got Trebbiano Lugano, Syrah, and a grape called Carmenere. And the Carmenere gives it this beautiful bright nose. So when you stick your nose in the glass right up front, you get sort of strawberry notes Mm. and just brightness. You want to just get it to your lips as quick as possible. This almost has a Sancerre feel. And that comes from the the crispness of the Trebbiano Lugano and the depth of the Corvina. Carmenere has just got this unique red berry fruit. So you pick up that dark raspberry, a little bit of dried strawberry in there. And then I do get this little sort of subtle grapefruit note. I do, too. It Mm -hmm. just keeps it super crisp. And where does that come from? The magic of the blend. (laughs) The magic of the blend. And this is just being released. Just But I hear that people are picking, yeah, yeah, in our region, people are starting to pick this up. One of the biggest uh, interesting pieces of news is um, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, I guess, are big fans. And uh, so (laughs) they're drinking this, and it just came out in one of the news magazines, so we'll... uh, We'll, be, we'll right, be promoting that as well. It's right in George Clooney's neighborhood. I wonder if he's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> He seems to be a man who knows about wine. Amy, what would you have it with? I'd have it with really just about anything. I would have mm. it with just about anything. It's also very hard, again, not to see yourself in the bedroom with the terrace mm. overlooking the lake, yeah, you know, and it's 5 o'clock and the sunlight is still streaming and it's coming across the parquet floors and... You know, it just seems a shame to keep your clothes on, mm. and uh, you open the bottle, and there you are. <laughs> I see, love it. You see, you see why Mark Amy blew that as an ad. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Can we put that on TV? <laughs> I'm thinking about the breeze on your shoulders in those dresses from that period. Yep. The breeze that caresses your shoulders, and yet you're not chilly at night. It's that soft, luscious time in places, tropical places, Mm -hmm. that thing. It's just a very romantic wine. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah. And you see why Amy Bloom was good to do the love (laughs) affair. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. And about, how much a bottle? Right around $17 a bottle. Oh, my God. Yeah. Gorgeous. It's an astonishing price for this particular rosé. Pasqua is the vineyard. This is all on our website. Foodschmooze.org would tell you what to say at the wine store. Great discovery. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you, you for sharing that. Yeah. Lucky us because we've had Amy Bloom, her new novel, White Houses. We've tried this 
elegant rosé that goes with every imaginable kind of food. And coming up, we have Thomas Matthews, executive editor of Wine Spectator. I might just tell him about this wine, see what his thoughts are. (laughs) Okay, Amy Bloom, thank you so much for coming on the show. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers for an on-demand podcast. Go to foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, and Hamptons, of course. Senior producer is Robin Doyon Aiken. I'm Faith Middleton. And to hear this show on WNPR, it airs Thursdays at 3 and 9 and Saturdays at noon. We have podcasts, as you know, and all the things we talk about on the show you can find at Food Schmooze. Now, we just tried a wine, and let me include our guest in what we just did. You are about to meet Thomas Matthews, who is, if you're a Wine Spectator reader as I am, he's executive editor, and he's going to be Master of Ceremonies at a fundraising wine event, and all the money for this is going to the Mary Wade Home in New Haven, which is just among the best. This is a place that has a mission of high-quality medical care. They do these social programs, residential services for people in need, adult daycare center, assisted living, uh, rehab, nursing, even hospice care. So how fun to have Thomas Matthews on the show. Thank you and welcome. Thank you, Faith. Thank you for having me. Thomas, I just want to include you in what we just did. We tasted a wine. I was trying to hold it off until you got on, and then I thought, this is mean because Thomas doesn't have this in the glass. But I would, <laughs> I, I'd like to talk with you about this for a second. It's called 11 Minutes, and it's from the Vineyard Pasqua. Mark, you'll do a better job. 11 minutes of skin contact to give us the palest rosé. Sure. What are the grapes again? It's a blend from the Verona region and uh, more towards Lake Garda. So you've got uh, Corvina, Trebbiano Lugano, Syrah, and a touch of Carmenere. Sounds exotic. Yeah. Yeah. Had a taste. It's very Sancerre-like. There's a richness to this. And the reason I'm bringing it up with you, Thomas, as we go on to describe your event, I wanted to get your thoughts on the explosion, you might say, of rosés across the country. I don't know if Europeans were doing this all the time, but certainly in America, there's been an explosion of interest. And are you seeing them? I'm seeing every type of rosé imaginable. Are you? It's extraordinary. America now drinks 20% of the global rosé production. And uh, we are actually featuring rosé in the upcoming June 30th issue of Wine Spectator, so you can read all about it. I think 
two salient points. One is America has fallen in love with Provence-style rosé, as you described this rosé from Italy. Very pale, very dry, crisp and refreshing, perfect summer wine, and now appropriate all year round. My fear, and maybe your other guests will chime in on this, is that rosés have historically been made in many different styles from many different regions, many different grapes. One of the most historic and authentic kinds of wine, and now all these regions, like uh, Verona, are rushing to make the Provence style, and I'm afraid that it's turning from a traditional wine into a brand. Uh-huh. Mm. So I, I, I'm a rosé drinker and have been for a long time, and I do drink them year-round, and, and I'm pretty careful in my choosing. This is one of the best I've had in years. I see this candy-like finish on these wines, uh, that echo that is in your throat after you've had a sip or two. And it has this distasteful to me candy-like thing Almost going on. Almost sort of like Jolly Rancher kind yeah. of little note to it. Yeah. yeah. It, do you see that, Thomas? Well, if you'll recall from the 70s, Matus and Lancers. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. That was my wine. And 90s Whites in America has <laughs> yeah. always drunk their pink wines a little bit sweet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This this new wave is almost entirely dry, at least the Provencal inspiration. Yeah. But now... Mm-hmm. Big brands are marketing slightly sweet versions to pick up on that American palate, mm. and you're picking up on that in your tasting. Hmm. Okay, I'm with Mark Raymond of Carolina Wine Brands and Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant. And now we have Thomas Matthews, executive editor of Wine Spectator. Now I want to say the Mary Wade Dinner. It's the 13th annual dinner of theirs, and it's April 21st. It's a Saturday night from 6 to 10 p.m. Your master of ceremonies, Thomas Matthews, what is it you do, and how do you talk about wine at this event? Well, the origins go back, as you say, 13 years, Faith, when my stepfather, a Methodist minister and Mary Wade board member, said, Tom, let's raise some money for this organization. Mm. They do great work, and we should help. I said, sure, what can we do? He said, why don't we do a wine dinner? So ever since then, I have been soliciting donations from wine companies in the U.S. to supply wines for a dinner that welcomes 300 people. Wow. It is meant to be a celebration of Mary Wade, a easy introduction to wine, some great wines and great conversation. And over the years, we've succeeded in raising significant money. And I think helping Mary Wade get some of the recognition it so well deserves. Mm-hmm. This this year, the event, it's a wine dinner, by the way, and auction, and it's at the Omni Hotel at Yale. I've had the pleasure of actually attending this event in the past with um, a former colleague of mine at Wildman, um, Martin Sinkoff, and I uh, joined you in New Haven, and it was just an amazing event. You do an Thank incredible you. job with this event. Is it fun for you, Thomas, to hold forth about the wine in maybe a relaxed way? You can feel the keen interest in the room. I mean the kind of passion that people who aren't experts have. This isn't just some intellectual experience for these folks. There's an excitement in the room at these kinds of events. People have, you know, you have Thomas Matthews here. You have all these wines donated. I'm getting to try these things. Is that a special pleasure for you? It is fun. I enjoy bringing people into the world of wine and food, and trying the wines with the food is really the best way to find out what you like and what works. And I don't have to do the heavy lifting. We have experts from the companies, as Mark was saying, explain their wines to these people. For example, this year, 
Esprit de Vin, which is a Taub family company, is supplying the wines, and Brian Cronin is their national education manager and a master sommelier, and he'll be doing the technical stuff. But it's always in a very general way, and hopefully people just learn on themselves by tasting and eating. When you talk to wine producers and you say, I I need a bottle donated for this event, because I know this is personal for you, and in a way it's personal for me too. I love Mary Wade's uh, stuff that they do in New Haven. And do you sometimes think, oh, this will be a great score if I can get these people to donate a bottle of this? Do you do that? Well, Faith, you know, it's not just a bottle or two. It's like... 20 or 30 cases of wine. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> and they donate very good wines, too. I mean, we're having great Bordeaux's from the collection of uh, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, not oh, Lafitte wow. itself, oh, but yeah. among oh. their wines. So, uh, but you know what? The, the wine world is so generous. I, I have never had anybody say, oh, are you kidding me? We can't do that. They say, we are glad to help an organization like Mary Wayne. Yes. We've had even repeat people come back. They are so generous. I feel privileged to help, and I think it benefits everybody. Yeah. Um, well, Mary Wade Home is going strong, and with these donations, they're going to renovate the, as you know, the Boardman Historical Building, and that's the building that is going to house the Residential Assisted Living Center. And so very, very exciting. Anyone yeah. who has an older relative soon realizes I'm going to be facing these kinds of decisions. Everyone asks who's older, you know, what if I run out of money? What's going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. Look at this organization doing everything it can to be there for people. I, it's just remarkable. For me, it's a privilege to support them. This year marks the 150th anniversary that the Rothschild family bought Chateau Lafitte. So we're wow. talking about the legend of Lafitte. But in fact, Mary Wade was established two years before that in 1866 wow. and still flourishing. So they have wow. a long history of being solid contributors to this community. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, for being a part of it. And we are certainly going to go on every one of your wine tastings wherever you go. Yes. <laughs> we're going to be following right along with you. We hope that your listeners will join us because <laughs> it's a lot of fun and yeah. it is make you feel good to help this amazing organization. You know what? Four courses, wine auction, this kind of discussion, of course this is going to sell out. You can go right to marywade.org and get tickets for this thing, but I would urge you to act as quickly as you can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially after this. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Faith. You're welcome. Executive editor of Wine Spectator magazine, Thomas Matthews, who will be presiding at the Mary Wade Dinner April 21st from 6 to 10 p.m., the 13th annual four-course wine dinner at the Omni Hotel at Yale. We're on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and 9, Saturdays at noon, weekdays. Listen for my 60-second food schmoozes and never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast on your schedule. And when you need a little more party in your life, we're here online at foodschmooze.org. And we hope you'll talk with us on Facebook. We're at Faith Middleton Foodschmooze.